Yeah. <laughs> okay. Everybody, let's open the books. Page. Page. Uh, 13 in the... Now I'm seeing me. I hope they're not seeing me on Facebook. Yeah, they probably are. <laughs> <laughs> now we're kosher. We're good. Okay. So we we turned the page uh, last week. We went on to the next page, and we were in the middle of analyzing. The fact that Mordechai, the great hero of the Jewish people during the time of Purim, is called Ish Yemini, and then he's called Ish Yehudi. So is he a Yemini or a Yehudi? And the understanding is that Yemini is a reference to the tribe of Benyamin, who is called Benyamin. That's what Yaakov Avino called him. Rachel in her dying throes called him Ben-Oni, the son of my pain. And Yaakov changes his name to Ben-Yamin. And Yamin is a, a euphemistic reference to the Holy Land, to Eretz Yisrael, because Ben-Yamin is the only one of Jacob's children, the only one of the Shvatim who was born in Eretz Yisrael rather than Iraq. So he has this, this um, special designation, if you will. At any rate, it seems that Mordechai comes from the tribe of Binyamin, because he's a direct descendant of Shaul HaMelech. And going back to Shaul, that's that's the tribe of Binyamin. And on the other hand, we say Ishihudi. So the Gemara had this discussion back and forth. There was a suggestion that his mother was from the tribe of Yehuda and his father was from the tribe of Binyamin. So Mordechai is um, a, a confluence of the influence of both tribes. And there's one final answer. We, we left off here because really this opens a new door. The last answer is Rabbi Yechanan. Rabbi Yechanan is the elder sage of the Talmud Yerushalmi, who is sometimes compared or likened to an, a Tana, a rabbi from the, from the Tanaic age, and sometimes he's seen as the beginning, he heralds the Amoraic age, the age of the Talmud. Rabbi Yechanan says, Rabbi Yechanan Amar, La'olam mi binyamin. Let's, let's not fool around. In truth, he is a Binyaminite. He comes from Binyamin. He's from Shevet Binyamin. That's not even a question. Being Jewish comes from your mother. The details of your lineage, that comes from your father. So whether you're a Kohen or a Levi, depends who your father is. Whether you're Jewish or not, depends if your mother's Jewish. And the fact that Mordechai's mother would come from the tribe of Yehuda is not really an adequate reason to identify him with that particular Shevet. The details are provided by paternity. So, really, in truth, if you want to talk tribally, Mordechai is mi binyamin ka'asi. He comes from binyamin. Okay, so if he comes from binyamin, va'amai karele Yehudi. Why is he called Yehudi? This is how we get introduced to Mordechai. Ish Yehudi. He's a Yehuda man. But he's not a, he's not a Yehudi. He's a, he's a binyamini or a yamini. So Rabbi Yechanan said, and why indeed is he called Yehudi? Because Mordechai became famous by standing up against and refusing to acknowledge idolatry. And that's why he's called Yehudi. Yehudi describes the position that he staked out. 
Where do we see this? How do you know that he's called Yehudi because he was kafar by Vedazara because he denies the concept of idolatry? So the Gemara says that there's, there's actually a scriptural reference, and this takes us to the book of Daniel, when the Jewish people were taken into Galut in Babel in Babylon. So over there it says that everybody bowed to the golden idol with a very, very slender exception. Who are the exceptions? This is Daniel, Hanani, Mishal, Vazariah. Four young Jewish men, they do not bow. They do not pay any kind of homage or acknowledge the power of idolatry even under the rest of force. So how, how is it worded? The, the scripture, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. It says, they came to Nebuchadnezzar and they reported, I see Guven and Yehudayin. There are these Yehudayin, these Yehudayin fellows. Everybody has bowed, Your Honor, Your Majesty. Just like you wanted, everybody has bowed. However, there is these people, these Yehuda people, who they didn't bow. They're, they're not prepared to bow. And the story goes as the story goes. What happened to Daniel and Hananiah, Mishal, Vazariah? So the question, of course, is what's the proof that these are Yehudim? Maybe they're called Yehudim because they're from the tribe of Yehuda. It's almost like a 50% chance that any of the exiles were going to be from the tribe of Yehuda because most of the members of the, of the ten tribes were sent into exile and dispersed over a century before the south of Israel fell. The south of Israel was called Malchus Yehuda, the kingdom of Yehuda. It was dominated by the descendants of King David, of David HaMelech, who of course claims his paternity to the tribe, a member of Yehuda. So most of the people who lived in Yehuda were members of the Shevet Yehuda or Shevet Binyamin. Yes, it is true that they were members of other tribes as well. And there are numerous references to refugees arriving from northern Israel. In fact, Chizkiyo HaMelech is even, it's documented and now archaeologically proven that Chizkiyo HaMelech expands Yerushalayim. We, we found those walls already. We found the expanded and the enlarged Silwan uh, bath or, or Silwan uh, repository of water. It's, it, today, everything in the last 10 years, everything's been discovered. It's exactly as the scripture said. And according to the scripture, Chizkiyo HaMelech expands the city of Yerushalayim to be able to take in the refugees. Who are these refugees? Huh? <laughs> it's a dangerous question to ask these days. <laughs> this is an ancient question, okay? The, the refugees were the Jews from northern Israel. They were the escapees of northern Israel, members of other tribes. There's also a discussion at one point, Chulda Hanaviyah, the prophetess Chulda is not available, and the question, the Gemara says, where is Chulda? And the Gemara says, ah, Chulda wasn't there. She went, she went to bring back the Shvatim. And it is as a matter of, of fact, of Jewish uh, tradition, that we could be from any tribe. Any of us could be from any of the tribes. And we have a special prayer that we recite in the first days of Nisan, each and every day of the month, in case we're from this tribe, or that tribe, or the other tribe. And the only tribe that's had a question whether or not they should say this prayer is Kohenim and Levim, because they're clearly from the tribe of Levi. So there's an answer for that. And that's a subject for another day. But that question is addressed. You could ask a better question. Why are we saying any of the tribes other than Yehuda or Benyamin? And the answer is because any of us may well be from any of the tribes. It's just the majority of us came from Yehuda or Benyamin. So it's almost 50% chance that these people are going to be from the tribe of Yehuda. So maybe, maybe that's why they're called 
Yehudis. These Yehudis means these Yahuds from the tribe of Yehuda. So Taisvis kind of asked this question. And he says, if you look in the Gemara in Sanhedrin, on page 99, you'll see that not all of them were from the tribe of Yehuda. Now this itself is actually a dispute, whether all of them were from the tribe of Yehuda or not. In fact, there is a, a, a machloikis, whether Daniel, Hananiah, Meshavah, Zariah were all from the tribe of Yehuda. And then there is the opinion of Reb Shmuel Bar Nachmeni, who says that only Daniel was from Shevet Yehuda, but Hananiah, Meshavah, Zariah were from other tribes. And the fact that they said, there's these, these Jews, these Yehudoin, that don't want to bow, that don't want to pay homage to your idol, that tells us that they're called Yehudain because they're Kaifer Bavidazara. The Maharsha adds a marvelous emphasis here. He says, really and truly, why would Nebuchadnezzar's messenger care, or why would Nebuchadnezzar care to identify them by their tribe? They were just Jews. Like, like think about when the Jews were ghettoized. Think about the short seven and a half decades ago when our people were being persecuted. Did they care what kind of Jews they were? What did the Nazi command and come and say, I got 16 Levites and 24 Kohanim, and the rest are regular Jews. Do they care? This, these artificial distinctions in their eyes, they could care less. All they cared about is if you're Jewish, that's how we hate you. When Nebuchadnezzar wants to persecute the Jewish people or break their spiritual resolve by forcing them to bow to an idol, he doesn't care which tribe they're from. And why would the reporter, reporter come and say, you know, they're from Yehudain, they're the tribe of Yehuda. So the Maharsha maintains that clearly this is not an issue of the tribal ancestry. So despite what the Teisvah says or doesn't say, or despite this notion that these may be from the tribe of Yehuda, or maybe only Daniel was, and Hananiah, Meshav, Isaiah were not. Despite that, clearly the emphasis here is they're being called Yehudaim, and why they identify as Yehudaim? Because they're these stubborn Jews who refuse to accept the authority of Nebuchadnezzar, who refuse to bow their heads in submission before an idol. Ah, so here the Gemara says we have precedent. This, of course, takes place decades before the story of Purim. This is in the beginning of the Babylonian exile. Here we are in the very, very twilight where the Babylonian exile is almost finished. And we're, we're soon going to be going back to Israel. Once the story of Purim happens, already many Jews have returned to the, the land of Israel as the Ramban describes in great detail in the beginning of his commentary on Masechet Megillah. Many, many Jews are already living in Israel. And shortly after the story of Purim, that's when the Beis HaMikdash's building is reinstated by Esther's son, by Darius II. And, and, you know, things kind, of, things kind of end. But in the beginning of this Galut, it was identified that a Jew who refused to pay homage to the idol was called a Yehudi. A Yehudi. So this, my dear friends, is the reason that we, the Jewish people, are known to the world as the Jews, not the Israelites. And you know that in the northern kingdom, which was called Malchus Yisrael, the kingdom of Israel, there was rampant idolatry. Not that Malchus Yehuda did so fantastic all the time, but it reached a point where there were idolatrous faith systems, entire idol idols and rites and, and traditions and customs, all idolatrous in nature, which were going on in northern Israel that were homegrown. This was not them adopting somebody else's idols. They created their own ideologies, which were ant antithetical to Judaism. 
Now, mind you, that's happened a number of times since. Groups of Jews have broken off from the Jewish people and created their own idols. We're in the midst of seeing something like that happen before our very eyes in modern times, where there's these enormous swath of Western Jews who have now disassociated themselves tragically from Torah Judaism. And they have adopted mores and ethos, which are really foreign and alien to Torah. They have nothing to do with Yiddishkeit. And that has become the, 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 the focus. So this is not, unfortunately, a, an, an isolated phenomenon, but it happened more in the Northern Kingdom. And the name Yehudi came to refer to a Jew. A Jew who identified as Jewish was necessarily somebody who refused to go with the status quo. The kind of Jew who understood, like the salmon, who has to swim upstream and has to sometimes jump into the mouth of a bear. That's what happens to salmon who swim upstream. They don't all make it. But the salmon knows that if he doesn't swim upstream, there's no way there'll be another generation. So we are the, the salmon, so to speak. We're swimming upstream. That's Yehuda going against the path of, of least resistance. In fact, going against the path of greatest resistance and maintaining a sense of loyalty to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, despite the fact that it does not fit the pragmatism or political correctness of our time and that it requires a tremendous amount of inner courage to go against the flow. But that's traditionally who we've been ever since. And that's why we're called Jews. That's good to know. It's good to know why we're called Jews. It's good to understand the name that we were given. Because really and truly, if one thinks about it, in the scriptures, we're always the people of Israel. And now we're known as Jews. Where did, where did that shift? Where did this all happen? And the answer is the story of Purim. And the story of Purim, as we have learned and we will learn, is a defining moment for the Jewish people. This is when what began at Sinai is brought to its fruition and completion, as the Talmud in Masechet Shabbat says, as is explained at length in the teachings and doctrines of Hasidus. So this is this major paradigm shift where we move from just being not only Yisrael, not only Kisarisa, not only can we contend with challenges, both divine and mortal, not only can we deal with difficulties and rise again and again and again like the phoenix and, not, and outfox and outlive and not only survive but triumph over our enemies, but in fact, our hallmark has become we are the people who refuses to go along with idolatry. We are the people who will always have the strength to stand up for the truth of monotheism and the truth of Torah Yiddishkeit. So that's the, the idea of Yehuda. Now, the Gemara is going to kind of take a little bit of a, a tangent, as, as the Gemara sometimes does. The reason the Gemara is going to do this is because we have just uncovered an idea. Just uncovered this idea that, 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 that to be a revolutionary is a virtue. That, that to refuse to accept the status quo, to realize and, and appreciate the fact that just because everybody's doing something doesn't mean it's right, that that's a virtue that Mordechai embodied, that the Jewish people embraced during the time of Purim, as we know, had they given in, had they refused to self-identify as Jewish people, then the decree would have been rescinded. The decree was never leveled against people who were Jewish by birth necessarily, or by genetics, the decree was leveled against Jews who identified as Jews. And that was an act of incredible courage all year long. Not a single Jew backed out. Not a single Jew said, don't count me in. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not part of these people anymore. I'm just a Persian or a Phoenician or whatever else it is. But all of the Jewish people, and that's why in the, in the Megillah, what are we called? We're called Yehudim. It's the first book of Scripture where our nation is not referred to as 
Yisraelim, but rather Yehudim. And Mordechai becomes the archetypal Jew. He becomes the paradigm and the face of the Jewish people in his refusal to accept Haman and Haman's quasi-deity uh, status that he tried to establish, create and establish for himself. So the Gemara now begins to talk to us about a totally different subject. We're going to be going back in time uh, easily some 13 centuries or so, or 12 centuries. We're going to go back to the time of, okay, I'm exaggerating, <laughs> less than 11 centuries. We're going to go back to the time of Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe is childhood. Moshe is infancy. And then we would accelerate to the time immediately after Moshe Rabbeinu, to the time when the Jewish people actually come into the land of Israel. And we're going to see that this idea that a Jew who refused to acknowledge idolatry was identified as Yehudi or as a revolutionary is endemic to Jewish tradition and was always seen as a virtue, as, as we'll see now. I should tell you before we go on that the Maharsha emphasizes that the name Yehuda includes with it the name of God. Yehuda has Yud Kei Vavke, there's just an extra Dalit. Otherwise, it's the four letters of ineffable name of God. And as some of the Mepharshim point out, there are other names for God, like Kael, like, like, like Elekeinu, and, and then Shindal Yud. And sometimes even Sadikim or Malachim are referred to. As it says, like Kael Elekei, uh, Yaakov Avinu is referred to by God's name. There's two versions of how to read that verse. Either that Yaakov is referred to as in, in a divine-like image, as a reflection of Hashem. And malachim, angels are called bnei elikim or things like that. But nobody gets identified, no other entity, even an entity reflecting God's presence, is ever identified with the name Yudke Vavke. Because that's the ineffable name of God. That's known as Shem Ha'etzem. Shem Ha'etzem refers to the Almighty Himself. It can't be borrowed, it can't be used in any other tense. Uh, when it says in, in Parshas Mishpatim, Elohim Leisekalel, the simple meaning is Yom Cursed Judge. Just like in English, the name Lord could refer to God, blessed are you, O Lord, or the name Lord could refer to people who sit in a particular hall called the House of Lords, House of Commons, the elected officials, the House of Lords, who the government appointed, or people that the government decided to induct into this House of Lords. In Canada, it's called the Senate, but it's the same idea. These senators are appointed, not elected, so they're commoners. The House of Commons is commoners. The Prime Minister is a commoner. The House of Lords, they have to ratify what the commoners say. Whatever. So I get into that whole mumbo-jumbo. But, but I'm just saying, Lord and Lord. There's Lord God and there's Lord whoever. So there are other names which can sometimes refer to God and sometimes refer to angels or even extraordinary people. But the name Yudke Vavke. The shame ha'etzem, this is never found in any other tense. That refers only to God. And therefore, the name Yehuda, which has in it Yudke Vavke, which has in it the name of God, is, is the perfect name of the person who refuses to acknowledge any other deity, force, or power and pays his homage only, only to HaKadosh Baruch. Okay. Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi we're now going to be introduced to a teaching of Reb Shimon ben Pazi. Shimon ben Pazi is, 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 like I said, this is a teaching that goes back more than a millennia. But as you'll see, there's a very fascinating connection between Mordechai and who he was and who the Jewish people became as a result 
of him. And an earlier iteration, or the first iteration of the leader of our nation, which is Moshe Rabbeinu. You know, we have a medrash that says that Mordechai Kemoshe. Mordechai and Moshe Rabbeinu, there's a similarity between the two. As Moshe Rabbeinu was in his time, Mordechai was in his time. This is along the lines of the Zoharic teaching that Ispashtusa the Moshe Bechol Dara that there is an extension of Moshe Rabbeinu in every single generation, a great soul who is able to galvanize, ignite, and inflame the Neshamas the Yisrael, the souls of the Jewish people. He can bring us together and he can bring out the best of us. So this idea of Yehuda, we're going to see, actually is connected to Moshe Rabbeinu and to the people who were very close to Moshe Rabbeinu, people right around Moshe Rabbeinu. Incidentally, just as a curio, what is Shimon ben Pazi? It's a funny name, Pazi. So there's two opinions where this name Shimon ben Pazi comes from. One opinion is that Pazi was his mother's name. It's a girl's name, a woman's name. Usually we refer to people like Shmuel bar Nachmeni, we just said. Or we have uh, people usually by the father's name. That's so you get called to the Torah. You're Jewish because of your mother and your lineage is your father. But uh, Pazi was a, came from a very, very respected family, more so than his father. And in fact, according to some opinions, she was the daughter of Rabbi Chia. And so Chia was so prominent, so important. So therefore, this Shimon was a grandson of Rabbi Chia. That's why he called himself Shimon ben Pazi. There's another story that's brought down that there was an ancestor of the name, the family ben Pazi, whose name was Yosef. And he had committed himself to study Torah because a very wealthy person who was not prepared to devote his life to Torah study, said whoever would study Torah, kind of like a Yusachar Zvulun, like, you know, you study Torah, I'll pay your way. He was going to give them all kinds of treasures and riches. And this uh, young fellow, Yosef, took up the challenge, said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. And, and he received a goblet made of gold and a, and a plate, and it was called Pazi. The whole, the whole ensemble was called Paz. Paz means fine gold. And at some point, he said to himself, I don't want to sell my Torah. I don't want this is ridiculous. I'm going I'm to sell eternity for something temporary, something evanescent, like, like gold? And he went to this wealthy person and he said, the deal's off. Thanks, but no thanks. You know, you, you did inspire me, but I'm, 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 not, I'm not ready to go through this. Take your money back. I'll give you everything back. I don't want to keep anything. I want to study Torah for the love of Torah. And it's, it's not worth it. it says that. In other words, he developed a, 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 an appreciation. He valued Torah. And because that virtue was so close to him, it was something the family was very proud of. Which also goes into something we talked about last week about epigenetics. And the fact that through tremendous effort, a person could not only change themselves superficially, but can actually modify and dent their own DNA. can actually implant this sort of... This sub Yosef implanted within his progeny a love for Torah, not for the benefits, but for Torah itself. Anyway... It's an interesting story as I'm teaching you, so I just thought of there was a there was a man whose life my grandfather saved during during the during the war. My my great grandfather was arrested by the communists, eventually beaten to death for being the last rabbi of Kiev. And at some point they were starving. They were in Siberia starving, but the Nazis had started World War II in the meantime. And my great grandfather was still alive at the time. And my grandfather was a young bacher, I think he was maybe 18 or 19 years old, he went to forage, tried to find some food. People were dying of starvation. And he heard this noise, and he thought maybe it was a little animal. And he discovered it in a ditch on the side of the railroad tracks, he discovered a beaten, bloodied person who barely looked human. And he took this person, and, 
and he kind of saved his life. He put him on the oven, and they tried to put water in his mouth. Anyway, he did save his life. And this, this uh, person was a very, very chash of a rav in Poland. It's called the Yarden of a rav. He was a, was a bab of a chassid. Anyway, he, d- he, d- he does survive the war because my grandfather found him. And my father told me he remembers at some point this rav, this person became a rabbi, I think, s- somewhere on the east side of New York. His, either he or his children um, kind of traced my grandparents who had no money, you know, poor immigrants at the time, and they came to bring him money when he didn't have any money. Came to bring him money because they said, we heard the story. And, you know, and my father told me he remembers his father just about throwing them out of the house. Like, <laughs> like are you kidding? He said, you think I'm going to give my mitzvah away for money? I don't have any money, but I'm not giving that away. I saved somebody's life. It's the greatest honor. It's the biggest cause. You, you want to pay me off for that? Like, Anyway, this is where the Shimon of Pazi, this is this idea of the family preserved this integrity for Torah, this love for Torah, and that's why the family was called the Ben Pazi family, and the Shimon is the Shimon Ben Pazi. Anyway, just like a little curio, <laughs> curious little thing on the side. So, um, before we go on, I just want to, I'll share with you the words of Rashi. I see Guvrun Yehudayin, the Sefer Dekra. Rashi says, if you look in the end of that verse, it says, Elohach lepolachan. They're your God, they don't worship. So therefore, he flew into a rage and all the things happened. The Shimon ben Pazi used to expound the Book of Chronicles. Now, the Book of Chronicles is markedly different than the other books of the Scripture. Why so? Because all of the books of the Scripture, as a rule, have to be understood first and foremost in the literal tense. This is as Absadia Gohan writes, that anybody who takes mikra midei pshute, anybody who disconstrues the words of the Scripture from their literal meaning is actually misconstruing. And he says that's heresy. You're not allowed to do that. Unless it's clearly not meant literally like cities that reached into the heavens. That doesn't make any sense. And it can't be that. So what does it mean? Well, that's the biblical term for today's modern expression, skyscraper. That's all it means. Or, or, or the other euphemism like that. So sometimes the Bible employs euphemism. The only parsha in the entire Torah which we necessarily reach for drash, for a homily, and for the expounded form of understanding rather than the literal form of understanding is actually Parsha, Parsha's Balak. The Rebbe once uh, spoke a very famous sikha how Rashi says about Bilam that Bilam says, I'm standing on the hilltops. And Rashi gives us a whole interpretation that the mountains are the patriarchs and the hills are the matriarchs. And he says, like, <laughs> it says hills. That's where he was. We know he was standing on the mountain. Don't you have to understand the verse literally? And in fact, many of the other Pashtunim, many of the other commentaries, they say that's what it means, literally. And Rashi, whose self-imposed mandate is Pshuto Shal Mikra, he explains everything literally. He somehow gives us this medrash, this, this like medrashic teaching. So the Rebbe said, yeah, look at the words of Bilam. How does he open his soliloquy? You know, he's like talking to no one, right? He's talking to himself. It's like, so how does, he, how does he start? He says, Vayisa Mishaloi. He began with his own parable. In other words, Bilal himself, before he begins to speak, he says, everything I'm going to tell you now is a parable. So therefore, Rashi understands that it has to be meant parabically. It cannot be meant literally. And what difference does it make where he's standing? Does he talk about the 
the company who made his shoes? Let's talk about the clothes he's wearing. It's not relevant. He's a mountain. Anyway, it's a contradiction. Either you're on the mountains or you're on the hills. So therefore, Rashi says, because Bilam introduces things in a parabolic way, that's why it necessarily must be metaphoric, euphemistic. It has to be alluding to something else. But bi- that's why Parsha's Bullock is radically different. And Bilam's words specifically are Mishaloi. But other than Bilam's words, it's, it's not euphemism. It's not poetry. We have a Parsha called Hazinu, which is called a Shira. Okay, so it's a Shira. It's a song. A song means it's a ballad, it's a poet, a poetry. It's not to be understood literally, but always we understand verses literally. Now, the book of Chronicles, the Rishim ben Pazi says, is the atypical book of the Bible. It's the book that should not be understood literally. This is a very big chiddush. It's a very great novelty what he's, what he's going to tell us now. When Rishim ben Pazi would teach the book of Chronicles, Omar, he said... Here, if it talks about a number of different people, it doesn't mean a number of different people. What does it mean? It's all the same person. This is all metaphor. We're evoking and invoking different shades of this individual's personality. But we're not necessarily speaking about different people. And, And so... He gives you an example in this. And he said, And we know that it has to be deeply expounded. And then, once we know that, we have that mindset, so that's when we're able to properly understand the meaning of these verses. Let's take a look in Rashi. Rashi says, All of your words are one. Which sounds euphemistic in and of itself. Rashi says like this, in deference to this book, known as Divri Hayam in Chronicles, he would say, all of the words of Divri Hayam in Achasim, they're all one. <laughs> it's a whole book, it's all one. It's actually a pretty long book. What does it mean all the words are all one? Rashi explains, many names are sometimes mentioned, Ploini, Uploini, so-and-so, and so-and-so. The Chulon, but actually, they're all one person. So it says many people. And if you would understand a verse literally, you would say, it says many people, but must be many people. Maybe there's also a lesson as well. No, not in the book of Chronicles. Here, to begin with, make the assumption that it's not literally what it says. Let me give you an example of this from our class only last week. In the previous class, we learned about Mordechai, who is Ben Shimi, Ben Kish. And the Gemara expounded on each of these people and said, well, it's not really the person. So why do we mention these people? It's not all the generations. He said, because these were reflective of Mordechai's qualities. These were embodiments of his greatest virtues. But nobody suggests that those were actually not ancestors. They were ancestors. First and foremost, it's ancestry. First and foremost... It's tracing Mordechai's lineage. A secondary message, what we would say in English like pun intended. Pun intended doesn't mean don't read the word literally. It means I'm saying something to you. I'm using a specific form of verbiage because I want to convey something else. Or I want to be cute. Or I want to like kind of link it in a way to something said previously. So there is 
things being alluded to. It doesn't mean it's not literal. It is literal. What I, I meant what I said and I said what I meant. Only I, I chose my words so carefully that I actually meant even more than I said. There's more to the face value of my words. So, ben shimi, ben kish, ben ishimi. There's more to that. There's more. But here, when it comes to the book of Chronicles, the book of Divra Hayomim, says of Shimon ben Pazi, you should know. This was his preface. Before we start, I'm telling you right now, you're going to read these verses. Oh, one person, two, three, whole bunch of people. No, no, no. All echad. It's all one person. It's not, these are, this is not to be taken literally as numerous individuals being spoken of. This is to be understood as numerous virtues or qualities of one person that are being discussed and being developed here. And here's an example. And this is very much connected to what we just spoke about because we are going to be introduced to the first person who is called Yehudi. And you're in for a surprise. This is a familiar name, incidentally. During the time of Hanukkah, there's a very famous woman who does some remarkable deeds and is remembered for posterity in our Hanukkah observances who has this name. But here we find the origin of the name and the origin of the concept of Mordechai HaYehudi by extension, which goes back literally more than a millennia before this story. In the book of Chronicles it states the following, Ve'ishtoi HaYehudiya, his wife, the Jew, the Yehudiya, Yolda, she gave birth to Yered, who is Avigdor, to Hever, who is Avi Socho, to Yukutiel, who is Avi Zenoach, the Ela Bnei Batya Bat Paro. And these are the sons of Batya, or Bitya, the daughter of Pharaoh. Asherlokach Mered, who was later married by a man named Mered. Something very strange is going on over here. This verse doesn't make any sense. The verse starts off by saying, and the wife that he married, her name was Yehudiah. Okay, so there's a lady named Yehudiah. Yehudiah has a number of children. She's got a child whose name is Yered. She's got a child whose name is Hever. She's got a child named Yukusil. And a child whose name is... Well, the three children. And each of these children is famous for fathering other names. Gdor, Soho, and Zenoach. And then the verse says, and all these children were born to Batya, the son of Pharaoh. So what's going on over there? Who married Merit? So the Gemara says, okay, first off, let me understand this. Who are we talking about? Who is this? <laughs> is this Pharaoh's daughter? Isn't she called Batya in the Torah? Is, isn't that her name? So the Gemara says, Amai Karila Yehudia. Why is she called Yehudia? Why in the book of Chronicles is she given another name? Now we're going to actually figure that out soon why she's given another name, but why is she given this name? Why is she called Yehudia? It's not her name. Hmm. So the Gemara says, I'll tell you why. Alshum Shakaf Rabba because she was the first to go against the stream and to deny idolatry. She lived in a land 
which functioned entirely on idolatrous virtues. Her father presented himself as a deity. He, he did such a good charade that he didn't use the washroom. There were no washrooms in his palace. And of course, it's not possible for a person to have intake without outtake because the nature of food is that it's filled with toxins. And the only way you can get what you need to live is something called a digestive system, which very ingeniously separates the chaff from the wheat, the toxins from the proteins, and eventually will push all of the negative stuff out of the body, which is the vast majority of matter, because most of what goes in your body actually ends up coming out of your body, looking and smelling a little differently. But what's extracted is the things that are needed to keep the body going. So the various proteins and starches and carbohydrates and so on and so forth are extracted. The healthy ones are extracted, and that's how a person is able to live. That's why we call junk food junk food because it's mostly junk. There isn't much good there. Now, I don't know that there's a larger volume of refuse that's pushed out of the other side if you eat junk food or not, but ultimately it takes a toll on your body when you're starving your body of the nutrients that it needs because you're just stuffing it with junk food and your digestive system is working overtime to get rid of the junk that you're putting into it, but it's not getting much for its investment. It's not taking much nutrients out of it. So, I mean, eating healthy is just logical. At any rate, the Pharaoh had no washrooms. He said, no, for me, I'm a god. I'm Midas. Everything I touch is gold. <laughs> Everything I eat is perfect. But how did he get rid of all the toxins? So this is the story that the Pharaoh used to go down to the Nile River, and God met God. Pharaoh said everybody that he was a god. They all worshipped the Nile River. That was their source of sustenance. They worshipped money. Not much has changed in uh, 4,000 years. And because they worshipped money and power, and because money and power came from the Nile River, when all other countries in the Middle East at the time were suffering famine because weather, weather pattern changes, and were, everybody else was always looking up to the heavens. Like it says, Eretz Yisrael is a place that naturally induces faith because it, it doesn't have much water from down below. It really needs the rainfall. So it says, Eretz Yisrael is limitara shamayim tishta. It needs to look up. In Israel, you've got to constantly look up. But in Egypt, they never look up. And there's a rain. So how do they get water? The Nile. And when everybody was hungry and everybody was starving, where were they coming for food? To Egypt. So how did Egypt become the wealthiest country? Because everybody needed food. And the only place you could be sure there was going to be food was the Nile. Mm -hmm. they, they, they were brilliant scientists and they made a very, very sophisticated system of dikes and, 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 and channels and they had the Nile Delta where everything would get irrigated and it would fertilize all the fields. It was a marvelous system. But the bottom line is, they worshipped the river. They looked down. And the Pharaoh, who claimed that he was a god, he claimed to commune with the others, the spirit of the Nile. And then he would do his little thing. But it was illegal to be near the Nile River at that time. So everybody was far away. They maybe saw a little tiny Pharaoh in there. And that's how he perpetuated his lie, his duplicity as being a god. Now, Batya, who's the daughter of this society that worships money and power and a few other things that we worship today, that's what they worship then. And she said, this is all wrong. My father's a liar. He's not a god. And in Egypt's worship of the Nile River is ridiculous. That's not a god. She actually believed in God. And it says that when Batya saw Moshe Rabbeinu, she saw the Shekhinah. 
There's a fascinating sikha from the Rebbe where he talks about the details of Moshe's being placed in the Nile River, where really Moshe's being placed into an idol. He's being placed into the cauldron of Egyptian idolatry, which incidentally is the deeper like, sim- symbolism of throwing the babies into the river, throwing the babies into what they worshipped, immersing them in their culture. So Moshe, but Moshe Beno is protected because he doesn't actually go into the water. He has a tevis goyme. He has his little basket. So Moses in a basket has a barrier between him and what the Nile represents. But Batya saw, she could see. It says she saw the presence of God, but she could look in the basket, which tells you that the basket was airtight or watertight on the bottom, but open on the top. So the Rebbe said, open on the top, is heaven is the symbol of God's presence. So Moshe was open to God and sealed off from the idolatry that the Nile represented. So Basya goes into the Nile River, and the reason that she goes to bathe, we're going to find out soon, is because Basya was in denial of what everybody else was worshipping. So she went into denial and quite literally went into the Nile to express her denial, which is going to be really interesting. Let's, let's see how this goes. The Amr Rabbi Yechanan, Rabbi Yechanan says, it says, the chsivit is written, the daughter of the Pharaoh goes into this tributary of the Nile River. The Amr Rabbi Yechanan, Rabbi Yechanan taught, that means, that she went to wash herself, from the toxic environment from the idolatry of her father's house. So this was like, she went to the mikveh. She went to the mikveh. She went, she went to leave behind her old life and enter herself into a new reality, one that's mindful of God's presence. Okay, we're, we're going to get into this in a minute, but I, I want to I clarify for you now, how did we get, how did we end up proving that the verses of the book of Chronicles are not to be taken at face value. So the, the answer really is pretty simple, right? Because we're, we're clearly talking about Basya, clearly. And we're talking about Basya, and yet we go through three different people, and it says these are the children that Basya had given birth to, but Basya is only known for giving birth to and raising Moshe. This is, this is describing the marriage of Basya, who is the second spouse of a great Jewish hero whose name is Kalev ben Yefuna. Who is Kalev ben Yefuna's first wife? Miriam. Miriam is the little girl who negotiates with the daughter of the Pharaoh over Moses. Miriam dies in the desert because the three great Jewish leaders of the Jewish people in the desert in the generation that left Mitzrayim were Moshe, Aharon, and Miriam, as we're going to discuss shortly. All three passed in the desert. So Kalev, who, as we're going to see, had the courage to go against, swim against the current when all of his peers were embracing these other ideas of denying Eretz Yisrael, Kalev said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm, go- I'm, I'm going to rebel against your ideas. I'm going to stay loyal to Hashem. Kalev does enter the land of Israel, and he does come to Hebron, where he prayed at the grave of Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarif, Leah. And who does Kalev marry? Kalev marries the daughter of Pharaoh, who for all we know was about his age. 
Because Miriam, Miriam was a little girl, and Basya doesn't have to be much older than her. Miriam was seven years old, six years old. I think seven it says she was, maybe eight. I think, I think seven is the number that's given. And so she's a few years older than Maishu Rabbeinu. And Basya was a few years older than that. So for all we know, Kaliv was could have been a little bit older than Miriam. Probably Basia's age. How old are they, by the way, now? In their 120s. <laughs> because Miriam, Aaron passes at 123. Moshe Rabbeinu is 120. Miriam passes a little earlier. If my memory doesn't fail me, she was 126, 127. So Kaliv has to be about 130 or so. Because Miriam, we know Moshe Rabbeinu was 80 years old when they left Mitzrayim. This is 40 years later. So it was about 130. But this was not so unusual. There were people who lived 100 years, 200 years. And Kalev, later on, remarries. Who does he remarry? Kalev, who is the brother-in-law of Moshe Rabbeinu, remarries the stepmother of Moshe Rabbeinu, who was only slightly older than Moshe. Maybe she was 10 years older. Maybe she, maybe she was 12 years older than Moshe. Maybe Kalev was the same age. Kalev remarries her and lives with her in the land of Israel, which we now know that the daughter of the Pharaoh, who saved Moshe Rabbeinu's life, who names him Moshe, incidentally, escapes from Egypt and joins the Jewish people. And she becomes a righteous convert. And she begins the process of her conversion to Judaism before anybody thought it was popular. At the, at the height of the persecution, in the worst of the purges, when babies were being thrown into the river, that's the time that Basia bravely goes against everything her society represents, denies her father's idolatry, and saves a little Jewish boy who ends up becoming the Moshe and Shayisro, the savior of the Jewish people, the Redeemer. This is all pretty cool, right? Pretty interesting stuff. So here we have a whole bunch of children that Basia had, but it's, Basia has one child. So clearly, that's what Hashem ben Pazi says, when you read Chronicles, don't take it literally. Basia didn't have many children. She had one Moshe Rabbeinu. I was soon going to ask, but she didn't give birth to Moshe. Of course she didn't. Moshe Rabbeinu's mother was, and that's another story, 120 years older than him. But she was also in the 120s when she gave birth to him. But Moshe Rabbeinu's mother didn't raise him. Ultimately, who raises Moshe? Batya. So Batya gets credit for that. And Batya began the process of her absorption into the Jewish people before we were even a Jewish people. So don't take this literally, he says. You're hearing about the child that she raised who was more valuable than many children. Moshe Rabbeinu was like valuable of, the value of many. He, he served so many purposes. He did so many things. You know, talk about having a child. Like, what a child. <laughs> that one child could change the whole world. It's like Rabbi Tzachana. Her, her child, youngest child was murdered by the Nazis. Other child passed away tragically at a very young age. She had one, one child left, the Rebbe. Husband died. She had one child, right? But what a child. Like, <laughs> think, you know? Okay, let's take a look in Rashi now. So Rashi says, The ain onu yoidim ledershan. The afal pieces, Rashi. She sitmas oison, se setamta oison. Even though the verse seems to seal things off, the verse does not tell us what it's talking about. 
The verse actually seems to block the message, seal off the deeper idea. No, no, we, we know that we have, to, we have to investigate, which is what the word dorish means. We have to investigate. We have to dig deeper and excavate this until we figure out the answer. Mishum Damrin El, we said, Kol Yehudi. We had, why are we even talking about this? Why are we talking about the book of Chronicles? <laughs> this is a Talmud, Talmudic exposition of the book of Esther. How do we get to the book of Chronicles? So he says, well, this is because we got, we're talking about the idea of Yehudi, so that's why, that's why, that's why this becomes an issue. That's how, we get, that's how we get to this. The Ishto HaYehudiya, so Rashi says, Vahaloi Basya Shema, her name was Basya, which is a pretty nice name too, by the way, Batya, daughter of God, and she believed in the real God. It says in the end, So the thing is, Rashi says, Lirchaitz means to immerse. Litvel, and this is the idea of Gerus. The idea of conversion. Batya sought to convert herself. So in some ways, when you immerse yourself fully in water, it's like being in the amniotic sac again. It's the closest you come to suicide and you come back from it. So it, when you're suspended in the water, you actually are, you're finished. If you stay there. But if you come out of the water, you're alive again, right? Like it's like, it's like going back to your primordial, st- pre-birth state. And in a certain way, the idea of immersion represents total bittle. In fact, the word tevila, which means immersion, has the same Hebrew letters as the word habitl, the nullification. So this is how we shed the old skin. The idea of going into a mikveh is, and not the same person who goes into the mikveh, not the same person who comes out of the mikveh. The person who converts to Judaism sheds his or her skin or old reality and comes out of the mikveh as a whole new person, as a whole new reality. And that's what this idea of going to the mikveh is. That's how, so we say that Batya went against everything that her father represented, and she denied idolatry, and she, that's why she went into the river. And, and because she did that, that's why we call her Yehudia. So, okay, here's a couple of, of, of important points. First of all, why is Abshim bin Pazi, he's almost like patting himself in the back. He said, like, you know, I, I looked, I looked, I, I dug deep enough till I figured, it out, I figured out the answer. It's not about uh, telling everybody how great you are. So actually, the Siv Sechom says the following. He says, we have a principle with regard to Torah study specifically, although it has a broader application as is brought down in the Memorum of the Rebbe Rashab and, and further amplified by the Rebbe when he spoke about the 12th Sukkim. Yagaiti v'loi matzasi. I tried really hard, but I didn't succeed. al Don't believe it. The Gemara says further, lo yagaiti. I didn't try hard. Umatsasi, and I found success. Altaman, don't believe it. Yagaiti umatsasi, I tried really hard and I succeeded, which is actually found a few pages back in the sixth page of this own tractate, this very tractate. Taman, then you can believe it. That's believable. So Shimon Pazi is trying to teach his students. When it comes to Torah, if there's a message you're supposed to figure out, you'll figure it out. I said, I didn't figure it out. He didn't try hard enough. You say, oh, yeah, I figured it out. Did you work at it? Nah, you didn't figure it out. Whatever you figured out, you fig- may figure, figure some of it out, but you didn't exhaust possibilities. The only way to exhaust possibilities in Torah study is to toil really hard. Now the Rebbe, building on the teaching of the Rebbe Rashab, says that this ultimately means in anything in Yiddishkeit. Let's talk about Yiddishkeit. Because a person can say, I tried to be a millionaire. So now nah, you didn't try hard enough. So, no, no, trust me, I really, really tried hard. 
I bought lottery tickets every hour. <laughs> that doesn't work. You can't say, I put my mind to becoming a professional hockey player. And, well, I'm still putting my mind to it. It's not, you, you can't say, a person, a person could be anything he or she wants to be. That's not true. That's not true. To become a gymnast, you need a body for a gymnast. To become a, a, a great professor or scientist, you need a brain of a great professor or scientist. You can't become anything. You can't become an actor or actress if you don't have the natural ability. If you're not dramatic and beautiful, it's not going to work. If, if a person can't become a singer, so you have a lousy voice, yeah, I'll try hard enough. Till, till, till what? But when it comes to Yiddishkeit, if God gives you a mission in life, persons say, I failed at my mission in life. So we say it's impossible for you to fail unless you failed to put the effort in. See, but if, if you put the effort in, then for sure you succeeded. Ah, you may say, I don't know. I look at my neighbor. My neighbor is more successful. You're not supposed to be your neighbor. You're supposed to be you. You will always succeed in being you. You will always succeed in being everything you're supposed to be in God's eyes if you work really hard at it. One of our jobs, incidentally, is to understand the Torah. So if we're not understanding the Torah, it's not because we can't understand the Torah, it's because we didn't care to make the investment. We didn't try hard enough. We didn't toil. And if Shimon ben Pazi wanted to teach this to his students, he says, I know this is a closed book. I know this chronicle book is not easy. You have to toil. And he said, trust me, I know. I didn't have an easy time figuring things out, but I toiled. And when I toiled, I figured it out. So that's what this is about. This is an important lesson in life. Now, because this is the case, as I explained to you, Marat Chaya says this is a, a different kind of book, a book that to begin with was built for non-literal messages, is that it requires the, the drash. So, so Basia is, is, is the, the, the mother of all these people. Now, the, the Marsha points out that the premise of, the, of, of, of this analysis is, well, if Basia is the mother, who is the father? We don't mention a father. Well, if we don't mention a father, then it has to be something connected to the mother. But it, ah, so something's funny here. So it's Basia, but we don't find Basia having any other children, and that's kind of how we that tips us off to go keep looking until we figure out that something clearly is missing here. There's a famous question of the Turi Oven. He asks a question on Rashi. He says, "With all due respect, uh, Rabbi Rashi." Conversion wasn't really possible at this point yet because you could only leave behind your Bnei Noach status to accept upon yourself a Bnei Yisrael status, but the Jewish people were still considered Bnei Noach. They were not Jewish yet. In fact, Avud Raham writes that being Jewish as we are today, meaning Asher Bachar Banu Mikola Amim, that happened at Mount Sinai. So we're, we're, we're post-Sinai Jews, so to speak. You can't really ask questions from before Matan Torah because we became a nation in the fullest sense. We became Jewish in the fullest sense as it is defined today. Like the Zohar says, holy soul, holy body, holy in every level, sacred, set aside for God. That's only after God selects and chooses us, which is a, a nuanced and difficult subject for, for a different time. So how would, how would, how would immersion help? How would that work? So there are, there, are, there are different answers to this question. One of the answers that's given is, the Baruch Tam says the following. He says, yes, the Jewish people weren't fully B'nai Yisrael yet, but they also weren't B'nai Noach anymore. Because the Rambam, in his, in his uh, book of, of uh, Meshna Torah, in the Hilchus Malachim, 
in, in chapter 9, the Ramam starts talking about the development of the Jewish people and he traces mitzvahs from the time of Avram. And he says that Amram, the father of Moshe, added more mitzvahs, which is a subject of contention because we don't, we don't know much about Amram. We don't know that he added more mitzvahs, although one very, very brilliant observation is that it says that Amram married his wife. Vayelech ish. The word Vayikach is the same word the Torah used later to describe matrimony. And so it seems that Amram introduced the Jewish people to holy matrimony as we know it today. And then there's other mitzvahs before. So Baruch Tam suggests that the Jewish people weren't fully B'nai Yisrael, but they also were not B'nai Noyach anymore. Because they had mitzvahs they were doing. And that's why so to, Batya wanted to join the Jewish people by at least shedding her old skin, not being the daughter of Pharaoh, not being Egyptian, being if not Bnei Yisrael, at least no longer Bnei Noach, a, a little bit close. Maharatz Chayas asks, you have to go to Mikvah before three people. You have to have a Bezdin. So others may answer that question. That's a Machleikas and Shokhan That's the opinion of the Rambam. There needs to be a Bezdin. According to uh, many opinions, you don't need a Bezdin. If a person went to the Mikvah all by themselves, there would still be a proper conversion. In fact, parenthetically, there's the discussion of Ruth, whether Ruth was a proper convert right away or whether she reconverted when she came to Israel. According to some opinions, she was a proper convert, but there was no Bezdin. Who would the Bezdin be? Elimelech and his two sons? A family? This, that's not, how, how would that be a Bezdin? So, so, it seems that there is a possibility of conversion. Not halachically today. You know, the Moshe Feinstein is very stringent about this. So, today we only follow the Rambam and there's no, no, no rabbi worth of salt that will agree that a conversion is a conversion unless all three Dayanim were Yirei Shemayim or, or pro, a proper Bezdin, which invalidates most of the non-halachic conversions, even if there were to be an acceptance of mitzvahs because you don't have a Bezdin present. <laughs> the people can't be a Bezdin. It's, it's but the Shach in his commentary in Shukun says that according to those opinions, you don't even need really two. The only reason you need two not three, is, is to give witness, a testimony. But in theory, you're one person immersing. So he says, but so how would Basia do this? So I, I don't understand this whole discussion a little bit because obviously, obviously this was not conversion as we know it today. But we do have this idea that, that uh, the Shvatim married, it's two opinions, with married sisters or married Canaanites, they did convert them in some way. I mean, Sephora, Ashes Moshe, who converted her, there was, there was some kind of conversion going on. That's... It's the common knowledge. Whatever conversion meant then, obviously it didn't have to be in the halachic way as we have it today. There are many examples like that. Like there's this whole teaching about Yehuda who seems, ends up married, at least according to one opinion, with Tamar, who was his daughter-in-law, and it's a Levite marriage, but that's ridiculous because Levite marriages, as the Torah ordains them, could never be like that. Yes, the Levite marriages, as the Torah ordains it, after Matan Torah can't be like that, but it was a Leverite form of marriage before Matan Torah, which, which could work for then. It doesn't work for afterwards. So there are various ideas. This was more like, like an idea. And, and furthermore, the question could be asked, what do you mean she went to mikveh? She went to mikveh in the, in the idol. <laughs> she went in the Nile. The Nile was the idol, right? So the, the, the Rogat go and says something unbelievable. He says that Batya went to wash her, to get filth off there, to, so to speak, demean the Nile. It was not an act of worship. It was not an act of homage. It was an act of disgrace. And she in, intended to do something called bitlavedazara. She intended to renounce, to show that she does not worship the idol. She does not worship the Nile. And actually, if you look at the Mepharshim about the whole story of Miriam placing Moshe Rabbeinu in the basket, didn't she hide him? Didn't she camouflage him? She puts him in the bulrushes. How did Tifaro's daughter see? So... I think the answer is very simple. I think Miriam did no way of understanding what it looked like from the other side. 
she camouflaged Moshe very well from the side of the seashore. But the Mepharshim talk about Bastia going away from the palace. What do you think Miriam was doing this next to the palace? She goes to a different, isolated part of, 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 the, of, the, of, the, of the river. And that's where she goes into the river. And she, on the other side, saw the basket plainly, which Miriam could never have imagined. What was she doing there? Ah, that's the act of divine providence. That's the incredible stroke of hand of Hashem, where Moshe, who they're pursuing him to kill him, and he's supposed to be the redeemer, and the Pharaoh who's trying to kill all the Jewish babies, his own daughter happens this time to go, and is exactly in that spot of the river where Moshe's tiny basket is. But this is even more beautiful, because why did she go to this part of the river? To demonstrate her disrespect. She said, this is not a god. This is a bathtub. This is a place to wash. Like some of the first ones say, she went to wash. It was like a, 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 a proverbial washing. Almost like she wanted to wash off. Like sometimes, you know, you hear of people who are abused and they said, I took a shower. I wanted to wash it off. But like she was washing off the ugliness of, of, of her father's house. She didn't go to the Nile, her father's palace, her father's private beach. She went to a different part of the Nile. So this is not an immersion. When Rashi says it means tefillah of geros, it means she's abandoning an old life. She came to this river to, to, she understood some kind of spiritual idea of what immersion could mean. And that was, that was what this was about. So Basya immerses in the river, denies its idolatrous nature, and of course saves Moshe Rabbeinu. The whole thing is just so stunning. It's, it's, so, it's so exquisite, Alec. Here's Basya, the daughter of the Pharaoh, denying idolatry. And as a result, Moshe comes out. And then we have Mordechai and Moshe, and this is Basya, the one who saves Moshe. She's Yehudiya, and Mordechai is Hayehudi. You know, like the sweep of history, how everything is connected, and nothing is independent of one another. It's all the, you know, these, these, these spiritual tentacles and wires reaching across generations. It's uh, pretty amazing. Okay, so the Gemara says like this. The Gemara says, one, one second to the Gemara. She, she didn't raise him. Vaha rabuye rabise. She only, she only raised him. She didn't give birth to him. Ah, yeah, that's true. What is the scripture trying to tell you here? Expound this one too. There's a message. And the message is, to tell you, anybody who raises an orphan, an orphan boy or girl, in his house, the scripture considers it as if they give birth to them. Now, of course, you could ask the question, how does it tell us that? Moshe Rabbeinu was not an orphan. And the answer that's given is, on the contrary, that exactly is the point, says the Sifzir Chavim. Moshe was not even an orphan, just ripped away from his parents' house, and yet it's as if Bashi gave birth to him. How much more so? Somebody doesn't have parents, how much more so that the one who raises him becomes as if they're actually their parent. And now the Gemara goes on to talk about the names and says, you should know all these people is Moshe Rabbeinu. Why is it all these people Moshe Rabbeinu? Yered ze Moshe. Yered is Moshe. Yered is Moshe. I thought his name was Moshe. No. Why is his name Moshe? V'lamu nikrashma Yered. She yared lahem Yisrael mon. He brought down the mon for the Jewish people. So that's why he's Yered. He brought down sustenance. And of course, we have the famous idea which the Gemara and tells us that the Jewish people were led by three great tzaddikim. Three great parnosim it's called. Three great uh, uh, pillars. Who were the three pillars? Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. And we know the Gemara that tells us that in the merit of Miriam came the well, hydration, the water. In the merit of Aaron came the environment, the cloud of glory that protected them. And in the merit of Moshe 
came the man. And elsewhere, the Rebbe says that actually lines up in perfect chorality with the spiritual contribution. Because this, the idea of Torah is like food. But it says that there's a halacha that says that you can't use water in a place where you need food. You have to put food aside for something called an eruv. You can't use water. Why? Because water does not have any nutrients in it. Water is non-caloric. And because it has no nutrients, it can't keep you alive. What can water do? Water can hydrate, which in a sense ensures that the nutrients that are there will reach your whole body. That was Miriam's contribution. Moshe Rabbeinu gave the Torah. It says, but it's altitash teridus yimecha. It's the nurturing of Yiddishkeit that the woman gives that brings the Torah lesson in a, in a way that animates and en- enlivens and energizes. So Moshe Rabbeinu brought the man, which represents Torah. Miriam brought the hydration, which represents actualizing the Torah. And Aaron and his love for Hashem and love for others created the proper environment. So these were the three great uh, leaders of the Jewish people. We're now, of course, we're speaking about Moshe Rabbeinu. So why is he Moshe? Moshe Rabbeinu who brought down the idea of the manna to the Jewish people so that they would be sustained. And what do we say? We say, and as a result of that, Gedor, he's called Gedor, Shegodar, that he was able to fix Pirtzeisei and Shal Yisrael, the, the, uh, br- the breakages or the, 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 the areas that were ripped open in the wall of Israel, Moshe Rabbeinu was able to fix that. So that's what we have. He's, he's Es Yered Avigdor. He brought them the Torah, and through the Torah, he was able to fix their many mistakes. So Yered, he brought them the Torah, and the Torah gives the power to do tshuva and to overcome the great mistakes that the Jewish people traditionally made in history, as the Masha explains. What's the next name for Moshe? The next name we said is the idea, Moshe is called Chever. Why is he called Chever? Moshe Rabbeinu connected the Jewish people to God. He, he nurtured the relationship. And then we said, in, in the Pasuk it says, Chever, who is Avi Socho. What does it mean, Socho? He became like a sukkah, protecting them. When did he protect them? Marsha says, after the sin of the golden calf, and after the sin of the Jewish people refusing to go into Eretz Yisrael, who was our shield? Who protected us? Moshe Rabbeinu. Without Moshe, where would we have ended up? The answer is nowhere. Then he's called Yekusil. Why Yekusil? Shekivu Yisrael lekel b'yamav. Because in Moshe Rabbeinu's days, the Jewish people were always hoping, looking, anticipating for Hashem's help. How so? Because what do we say about the manna? The manna would fall every single day, except Shabbos. And what, were you allowed to leave manna from one day to the next? No. What did you live on? They lived on hope. They lived on faith. They were always looking up. Even, even if it was the quail, the slav birds, whether it was slav or manna, they were always looking up to heaven, always waiting for the next meal. The next meal was always coming from God, so to speak. And you could see El Shekivu Yisrael Lekel B'yamav and finally, Zanoyach Shehizniach Avinusein Shal Yisrael, abandonment, because Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who got the Jewish people to abandon the sins. And this is through the prayers of Moshe, that Moshe Rabbeinu achieved Hashem's forgiveness, as the Marsha says, when God says to Moshe, I'll forgive the Jewish people, he says, Solachti Kidvorecha, as per your words. So this is all about the about who Moshe is. Why do we say Avi, Avi, Avi? It says three times. The Pasuk says, that Yered is Avigdor. Chever, Avishochel. You could see, what's Avi, Avi, Avi? 
So we say because he was Av B'Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu was a father, so to speak, in Torah. An Av B'Chochma, an Av in wisdom, and an Av a father, B'Nevius. The Elo B'Nei Basya, the verse continues, these are the, these are the children of Batya. Ashalokach Mered, Mered, who's Mered? Who's Mered? Didn't she marry Kalev? The Gemara says, she didn't marry Mered. V'chi Mered Shmai, V'alei Kalev Shmai. We know the story, we know who she married. The Gemara says, "Amar Hakadosh Baruch Hu, Yovei Kelev, Kolev, let Kolev come." Shemored ba'atzas meraglim, who rebelled against the idea of the meraglim, and he should be the one. Ve'yisas bas parei shemorda, who rebelled against gilule beisaviha. Understand? So Kolev, the one who comes, the first one to daven at the oil, so to speak, the one who comes back to Eretz Yisrael, the one who's got all the right ideas. Who was he? The scripture calls him Mered. And Yehudi is like Mered. As a Jew, is like a revolutionary. He doesn't accept status quo. The Jew is always the one to rebel. Now, of course, if a Jew is plugged into Torah, he rebels for good things. And if a Jew is not, then we rebel about stupid things. Rabbi Lau told me that during the course of his first Yechidus, when he met the Rebbe the first time, at a certain point, the Rebbe said, I don't understand, he said. You're in Israel. Maybe you could explain this to me. The Rebbe says, in every country... There's political upheaval. Every few years, throw the bums out and they bring in a whole new thing. They says, how is it possible it's 40 years later and the same people are still in politics? <laughs> he says, the Jewish people, even in modern times, the communist revolution, full of Jews. Socialist, social upheaval, Jews. In every field, Jews are the ones who always didn't accept the status quo. So how is it possible that Jews in the land of Israel just accept the status quo? The same people. From 1948 until 1975, 1977, when, when did Degen win the first time? Went to, for 40 years, the same party. <laughs> the Rebbe was like, I, I can't what, explain to you what's going on in Israel. It's so un-Jewish. It's so un-Jewish where just whatever, status quo. We have never been the status quo people. And this is a powerful message on so many levels. Mordechai ultimately is Hayehudi. He, we, we, we swim upstream we're ready to do what's unpopular. We're ready to do what's not politically correct because this is what we're inspired by our faith, by a Torah which is timeless, not a product of its time and its environment. And regardless of what it takes, a Yid will always find within himself because he's a Yid, because he's a Yehudi. From the times of Basia, who adopted Moshe Rabbeinu, from Kolev, who was able to go against his own peers, his own fellow Jewish peers, very prominent Jews, but it wasn't what Moshe Rabbeinu wanted. It wasn't what God commanded. It was the wrong thing. That's, my friends, our defining hallmark. And now you know why we're called Jews, not Israelites. <laughs>